Hello, welcome to the Bright Club Southampton podcast. I'm Dave Christensen. This is episode three. Thank you for listening. So on today's episode, we have uh, another one of the performers from our first show back in July 2015, Nikhil Mystery. And, uh, and actually, I'm going to be interviewing him this week. I haven't yet decided whether I'm going to introduce Bright Club and what we're doing in these podcasts in every episode, but, um, but I'll do it once more now at least. Uh, so we run a comedy night roughly every three months where we have uh, a bunch of researchers or academics uh, try and perform stand-up sets. Since those shows, we've then decided to start putting out a podcast, um, and in these podcasts we're wanting to get those performers back and uh, get them interviewed by other past performers to find out a bit more about them, a bit more about their work, how they got into research, um, where their research is going, all sorts of questions like that. Um, and I guess if you want to email in and ask us to ask different questions, then uh, please get in touch. Um, our email address is brightclubsotton at gmail.com. So then in putting together these podcasts, I edit in clips from the performances on the night, as well as the interview, so that then we can talk around the jokes and give a little bit of information that isn't included in the jokes, because obviously... The researchers aren't going to say everything about their work and keep it funny at the same time. So, um, but in this context, it might be nice to get a little bit more detail and and also discuss the process of coming up with the jokes. So, as I said, this third episode has uh, me interviewing Nickel Mystery. Uh, Nickel did a set about bubbles and their uses, um, and uh, I won't delay us any longer. Let's get on with the show. Hi, Nicole. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dave. So, um, my first question is, how did you enjoy your set? Oh, I loved it. It was really fun. Uh, it kind of felt like I was talking to friends, making jokes. You hadn't done stand-up stand before? Never though. done stand-up before. No. I mean, I cracked jokes in the office, but I'd, this was, I'd never like, formally stood up in front of an audience and delivered jokes. So, did you... Did you warm up into the set as you went along? It seemed that you came across very confidently straight away. Funnily enough, that's what a lot of people say. Uh, they they watch the set and thought, "Have you done this before?" And you know, to their surprise, I'd answer no. Um, I think uh, I'm, I'm quite used to cracking a lot of jokes in the office with my peers. You know, we we have a little kitchen, we have lunch in, and everyone comes across and we just talk about all sorts of nonsense and. Typically, I'll find a way to convert a serious conversation into a joke because I spend all the time in the office doing serious work. I'd like a bit of comic relief. And uh, um, I think the way I approached my set kind of so kind of guaranteed me laughs at the beginning, the way I started it. You know, so using accents, I think that's always an easy way just to get people, you know, comfortable with the fact that I'm making jokes. Very slapstick kind of approach. And then, and thereafter, then you... Once you got them laughing, you feel comfortable, and then yeah, sort of I think that's a joke. that's a nice way of thinking about it. I I think I would have felt the opposite actually. But <laughs> it seemed, I mean, I I can hear on the on your set, I can hear me giggling in the back at your start, but um, but I think it I would have felt really awkward. Like it might not have got any laughs. Yeah, yeah, there was. Well, I I thought about it afterwards when I was explaining to some people in the audience when we were having a chat, um, and I think. Um, 
Now, I, when I explained it to them, I then pretended that I had a technique behind it, but I didn't. I was just bluffing. Which is <laughs> kind of what happens when you're in research. <laughs> you don't want to explain you don't know it, so you try and make up a way to explain it. Um, so uh, when I think about it now, if you do an accent, the audience doesn't know what you sounded like before. So they don't know that it's a, an impression. They think that's how you actually speak. And um, so they're feeling a bit awkward because they want to laugh at it. I mean, even I know an Indian accent is funny, right? So if they want to laugh at it, but they don't, they can't because they don't want to insult me. Then I crack a joke in the Indian accent because then they'll laugh at the joke, even if it's a little bit funny. But most of the raucous laughter is coming from the fact that they can finally laugh, regardless of whether it's at the accent or the joke. And so actually they're expelling all their laughter from the accent. And then I go, oh, you know, I, I reveal that it was an accent and then they laugh even more and you're the king of the world. Yeah, I, I think it wasn't just the accent. I think it was also um, the the faking of being bumbling, not having yeah. any idea what you were doing, just going up and just pausing for longer than seemed comfortable and then saying jokes. Yeah. And that was it. And I think whatever accent you'd said that in, yeah. it would have been funny. <laughs> Hello? Hello, my name is Nick Hill, and I definitely don't study fashion. <laughs> all right, calm down, calm down. Comedy. We're all here for comedy, right? <laughs> Jokes. An Indian banana walks into a doctor's surgery. I'm not feeling too well. Were there any comedians that you were trying to sort of imitate by doing that or that you're getting inspiration um, from with that approach? I don't know, I mean, we've watched so many comedians. I kind of just amalgamate sort of bits, qualities no, sure, of all, sure. I mean, uh, to the the accent comes from basically every Indian comedian you might see on the tour. Yeah, they they're always going to use Indian accent. Most of them will use it when they're making jokes about their own sort of traits, like being an Indian, things like that. So very few, like if I, I'm pretty sure, if Indian comedians were to look at me, they'd think I was a traitor using it on a wider audience as a way of making fun of the Indian Indian accent. Most of them will do it very quickly. But mostly they'll be using the accent just to be like, oh, my dad told me to shut up the other day. You know? Sure. Um, I, so, I, you know, there's people like Russell Peters, Paul Chowdhury, people like that. Paul Chowdhury is almost like a, an Indian version of Frankie Ball. Like he does very sort of yeah. sinister sided jokes. So yeah. I wouldn't go that far. Um, yeah, it's very weird. You know, I, I, I probably go more for the slapstick side, you know, like Omid Jalili, something like that. Yeah. Um, and then... When you talk about things like research, it becomes a bit easier to have some more clever, wittier side of comedy. Um, but I don't know if there was anyone in particular I went for. I just sort of yeah. put together things that I'd seen previously. Yeah. I just want to say for the record that uh, there are definitely some British Asian comics who don't do a lot of Indian accents, I think. Yeah, there are people, people that like don't. Ramesh Ranganathan. Ramesh Ranganathan yeah, and Paul Sinner. Yeah. I don't really hear them. Yeah, so much. no, they wouldn't. Um, I'm more just thinking of the ones that do, really. <laughs> no, sure, I'm yeah. not. 
Yeah. Just wanted to point out. No, no, there are plenty that don't. Yeah, let's make this clear. <laughs> okay, I'm glad that's over. Sometimes my accent goes back to the motherland, Leicester. Um, right, onto onto the research though. Um, so, uh, like, why or when or how did you first decide to like become a scientist and do a PhD? This is really funny because if you had come to me when I was 18, 19 years old in sixth form college and said, Nick, you're going you're gonna to be a PhD researcher, you're going to really enjoy all the work that you do in your degree, you're going to work really hard, um, and you're, gonna, you know, you're just going to keep going with it and you're gonna, you want to want to go into academia, I'd have laughed at you because like back then I thought, no, I'm just going to do an engineering degree and work for a consultancy and that's going to make me loads of money and I'm going to do well. But actually... The moment I stepped foot into the uh, Institute of Sound and Vibration Research and started learning acoustical engineering, I fell in love with the subject straight away. Like Nothing ceased to amaze me. There was always something cool and new around the corner. And in, so after my second year of my undergraduate, I spent a year in industry working in Australia. I mean, while living in Australia was really cool, some of the work in consultancy was a bit repetitive and monotonous, and I didn't find a challenge. So I knew after that year that I wanted to go into research. And so in my third year, I studied underwater acoustics and ultrasonics, amongst other subjects. And uh, I did a project in underwater acoustics. That was my dissertation, modeling um, sound propagation in shallow water and looking at if we can manipulate the motion of fish using sound, especially in like hydropower stations and things where they suck in water from a local lake or something to cool down their system. They may end up sucking in fish. So if we could... Um, use sound to get the fish to swim away, they weren't sucking it. And then, in my, and then after my third year, I had a placement over the summer in the Institute of Cancer Research, working in their medical ultrasound team. And that was really, really cool. That yeah. I, like, I, uh, That's still where most of my passion lies, in the medical ultrasound field. Right. Um, but you know, underwater acoustics is still just as amazing, but that was my first love. And yeah. um, I tried to get a PhD there, but we couldn't find the funding, but that would have been in focused ultrasound surgery. So essentially using ultrasound instead of radiotherapy, essentially cooking tumours with sound energy. Yeah. Um, and that was really cool. And uh, after that, <clears throat> I, I then, in my fourth year, because I did the master's, uh, master's in engineering degree, I did another project here um, using a thing called Starstream, which is an ultrasonic cleaner invented by Tim, Professor Tim Layton here. And basically it just... It uses the introductions of, introduction of bubbles and ultrasound into a tap water stream. Um, and the bubbles get excited because of the ultrasound and they act as micro scrubbers. So they can go into, t we're talking like microns, these are a thousandth of a millimeter or a millionth of a millimeter. Um, tiny, tiny bubbles that can just go into tiny little nooks and crannies and because they're pulsating violently, they lift the dirt out. So oh. we modified it in our fourth year, a group of us, to use one in the dental field try and oh. clean plaque off teeth. Wow. Um, there's a big push for it now because it's part of this whole antimicrobial resistance team at the university where you have this multifaceted approach from biology, chemistry, engineering and the medical sciences. Um, this is one of the ways they're trying to battle that. So trying to sort of clean biofilm using Starstream. And it's, it's really wow. effective. Like there's some That's cool really videos online. And yeah, all these experiences confirm to me that yes, I want to be in academia, I want to do research, because there's always something new around the corner. Mm. And uh, at the end of my fourth year, the supervisor for that fourth year project and the supervisor for my third year, they're best pals, and they had a project and said, you'd be the best guy for it. So I said, let's awesome. do it. And uh, so it's all in sort of modelling the bubble. 
in, re in response to sound underwater. Now, I'm a first year PhD student, all glossy eyed and eager to save the world with my work. Now, I'm mostly doing a PhD for vanity reasons. And that's because, if you haven't seen on the bill before, my surname is Mystery. So can anyone guess what my name will be once I graduate? <laughs> oh no, it's Dr. Mystery. What will he do next? I don't know, but it'll appropriately remain a mystery. However, if I do want to perform any villainous acts, I will have to file for ethical approval. Now, this could reveal my, uh, any, uh, reveal my plans and eliminate any sense of uh, surprise or mystery that I do wish or wish not to intend. So maybe the villain industry isn't for me. Do you think, at the moment, do you think at least that you would carry on in academia after this? <coughs> for sure. Uh, yeah. the, the, big, the big goal is to teach. Yeah. Um, I'd love to teach at university because it is at uni that I sort of fell in love with what I'm doing and yeah. I kind of want to pass on that passion and yeah. that's why I quite like to get involved with a lot of public engagement because it's that sort of passing on that passion yeah. that I think sometimes people lack maybe in the lower years um, in yeah. schools, primary schools um, sometimes But you think you'd rather teach at a university than in a school? Yeah, because it's actually the acoustics that gets me excited I mean science is really cool, general physics is really good but I don't think I'd have enough knowledge in those fields to really teach in yeah. them. Whereas it's nice to teach at a higher level, I think. Yeah, I, I, you know, these are the things it's that you spend. I mean, I'm spending three, four years doing this, so yeah. I, I think I'd have enough knowledge to teach that later on. Yeah, already, and only a year in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully. <laughs> no, it's, it's pretty cool to be here. I do a lot of public engagement other to this, and it's, a lot of it's with children because they're very keen, very impressionable, and they'll do almost anything you want. Now, by anything you want, I'm not referring to Operation U-Tree, by the way. I do have a security clearance. Put your phones down, don't worry. For example, before I did my degree, I was a tennis coach for children, and I used to find funny ways that I could get them to just do anything, anything stupid. So I used to say, ah, oh, right, let's start by warming up our hands. Let's put them up and down. So they'd start doing this. Okay, let's warm up our necks. Move your heads backwards and forwards. Come on. Okay, let's warm up our legs and run around. And they start running around like this. My coach looks at me, half laughing, because he loves it, other half saying, can we get on with the workbooks? Do you do a lot of outreach? Do you, um, do you find that it's helpful to you and also you're helping other people or, or sort of trying to increase interest in science? I do a lot of outreach, so much so that at the moment I kind of forget that I have a PhD. Um, <laughs> it is really stressful and I think um, I think one of the last events I'm doing in the next few weeks is a Winchester Cathedral Science Festival and I think after that yeah. I think I'm going to take a bit of a break to just focus on my PhD and then maybe in the new year get back into things aside from Bright Club, you know, that's an ongoing thing. Um, Okay, break clubs are all right, people, don't worry. And you've got some <laughs> yeah. No, it's, um, I do a lot of it because it's, it's just so much fun. Yeah. Um, it's, what, so one of the things I'm, one of the projects I'm involved with is boosting the ability in public engagement in this antimicrobial resistance team. One of the problems they have is that a biologist is explaining something to an engineer, but with all this jargon, the engineer is not going to know it because they haven't studied biology. And then the chemist is doing, having the same problem. The engineer is also having the same problem. And so they've got this issue where they're trying to sort of beat infections without jargon, but they can't. They, they, so I've, I'm trying to develop a program for them where they can learn to sort of, it's a bit like Life Lab. Okay. 
which is which is another outreach program set that's based in the Southampton General Hospital and it's there to teach academics to communicate with any member of the public yeah so in life lab there's a lot of uh, so kids school groups come in to and meet, they, they spend the day the in the lab yeah. um, doing some experiments but also yes yeah, some scientists will go in and talk to them yeah and um, I'm trying to take that approach whereby we teach these guys like yes it's cool that you know the specifics you work really hard and you're really clever at doing all this stuff but when it comes to speaking to the public they don't care about these equations and these different chemical compounds they just want to know the sort of short and sweet and what it means to them mm. and so I'm trying to develop a program where they can understand this um, and Life Lab does this really cool thing in their training scheme where you have to first explain your research in 120 seconds and you have a go at that and you'd be surprised how many academics really have trouble with that yeah and then they tell you to do it in 30 seconds. Yeah. And that's fantastic. I think if you can do that, I mean, they, they say to a PhD researcher, if you can explain your research to your grandma in a minute, mm. then you know your work really well. Yeah. You know? And if she yeah. can understand it, then, uh, then you're doing a good job. So uh, I'm trying to do that at the moment because this is, this is a big issue. I see this everywhere. What I do, in, I'm part of the signal processing and re, uh, control group. And I've set up these fortnightly meetings where we all get together for an hour, excuse to just take a break, have a coffee and a cake or biscuit, whatever. And one person or two people, uh, one after the other, will go up and just present something, whether it's mm. the work they're doing now, the work they did before that led to this work, anything. And a lot of what I found was a lot of these guys are so hell-bent on equations. But I don't do the research they do, so these equations mean nothing to me and I'm just yeah. gonna fall asleep. What I want to know is, what is your work in a sentence? Like, what is your title of your thesis? And then in the event that I don't understand your title, where is it going to lead to in real life? Because at the end of the day, that's what everyone's going to ask you. Okay, mm. where will this go? Yeah. Uh, I think people lose sight of this. You have to keep yeah. remembering that, I think. And the problem is, so it starts from there. Like, let's say this is the top academia. This is the top of the chain. And then you know, that feeds back to sort of work and syllabus further down to primary education. Right. right, you filter it down more. Yeah, and if people can't explain things now, how are they going to communicate and get children excited at high school? Yeah, you know, yeah. it's impossible. It, it really is. And so, <clears throat> and the other thing is, like, I st I'm an acoustical engineer originally. That was the degree I did. Not many people really understand what that is. People just think, oh, it's microphones, speakers, and concert halls. Well, it's not because here I am in underwater acoustics, and yeah the girl next door, she's looking at auditory brainstem responses. So what she does is she has these, um, she has these probes, electroencephalographs, that sort of monitor brain activity, and she'll send sounds through the ear and see where the brain is responding to this. Yeah. You wouldn't think an acoustical engineer would do that, but that's right. one yeah, thing, yeah. you learn that, that's part of your degree. Yeah. Um, so I love to communicate that through to students because some of them, I know when I was 18, 19, picking unis was a very daunting experience. Yeah. You don't know, you don't have any experiences in life where you, you know, against which you can judge like, yeah, this degree is good for me and this uni is good for me. You just sure. have to make this decision of five unis to apply yeah. for. And so I think it's important to really help these guys. And even at younger ages, because we have such a deficit it, um, between science graduates and science jobs available in industry. Yeah. It brings in so much money, I think it's like a trillion or something a year. Wow. Yeah, it's mad. And um, because there are so many kids that don't know that science is the thing for them, it's this identity crisis, they, you, you get this shortfall. So, um, you know, it's just a case of people in STEM 
going and encouraging children, even those that don't know. Mm. Like the kids that do know, that's cool. Just give them a little nudge. You know, keep them on that path. But the ones that don't know, but you think could be worth it, you know, you don't, you won't know until you try it. Give them a go. Yeah. You know, like show them what there is, and they could do anything. So my background is acoustical engineering, and no, that's not moving speakers and microphones around. We study the physics of sound and vibration, and we have some very cool facilities here in Southampton. For example, a listening room where you can reproduce any acoustic environment, so you could reproduce the Mayflower Theatre there, and musicians or acts can come in there and practice and realise sort of what it sounds like if they were to go there before actually going there. We also have an anechoic chamber, and what you can do in there is use the walls to absorb sound, and it's really interesting. I want to get on to some of the um, some of the more scientific things you talked about. Yeah. Exact. Um, so, so on the subject of what you're talking about, some of the possibly more applied uses of acoustical engineering. But um, so you talked about in your set, uh, listening room and yeah. anechoic chamber and echo chamber, and I just kind of wonder what's what's the use of those things because they sound to me more like. The, the less interesting end of things yeah. where you're saying, oh, an acoustic engineer, they'd just be looking at microphones yeah, yeah, yeah. and concert halls. Well, it sounds like that's what those things are. <clears throat> well, just... yeah, because originally the, uh, the ISVR, which is the abbreviation for the Institute of Sound and Vibration Research, it originally started off as an aeronautical consultancy. Oh, okay. So this building was originally for planes. Yeah. And through that, they started to learn about acoustics. Yeah. And so then they became an acoustics consultancy. And that meant that they were doing these kind of things where they were measuring the, the amount of sound that comes off a material when wind is passing over it, things like that. Because they want to know how much sound comes off a wingtip when it's flying through the air. And so they had these built back in the 80s, I think it was. Um, and they were looking at noise emission tests, sound power tests. So in our reverberation chamber, you the point of the room is to spread sound evenly across the whole room. If you're in an office like we are now, you talk and the sound goes in all sorts of directions. Yeah. And it's going to hit that ch soft chairing, be absorbed. It's going to hit this hard wall and it's going to reflect almost perfectly. Um, you're going to get quiet zones, loud zones. In that room, there is no quiet and loud. Everywhere is the same. And it means you can generate really sa large sound levels if you have a sustain sustained sound in there. Like you just keep blasting some tone will just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger or louder rather you can do some really cool stuff in there like destructive not uh, destructive testing so nasa took their satellites in there because you can get up to 140 decibels even more at some frequencies you can get really loud in there and sound is just a fluctuation in pressure so if you have a loud sound you have a high pressure so if you what what nasa wanted to do is they wanted to see if this satellite could withstand a great pressure if it was going to break apart so you go in there um, and instead of using a loudspeaker to make the sound, you actually have just a high-speed airflow through a large horn, and that amplifies that sort of fluctuation in pressure from the air passing through the pipe. Mm. Um, and you can generate these large pressures and see what the satellite's going to do. Even better is a reverberation chamber, which reinforces echoes. And you can get echoes lasting 10 to 14 seconds in there in some circumstances. Now, naturally, the first thing I did when I first came to the department was the following. In the anechoic chamber, which is the opposite of that, it's there to absorb sound. That's where you're looking at, if you have something in that room, you want to know 
the sound coming specifically from one place only and nowhere else on that body that you've put in there then um, you put it in there because all the sound coming from other parts will be absorbed by the walls and you put a microphone right next to the position that you want to record and you know that the only sound in that room is coming from that position yeah so again the sound from a wingtip a new design or something like that oh. or um, <clears throat> they do a lot of virtual acoustic stuff there, stuff there so 3D sound is different to surround sound 3D sound is everywhere all around your head surround sound is usually just like front, left, right, back Yeah. and um, they can do some really cool stuff in there they, stuff, some of the stuff they're doing at the moment is where they use a connect to f track your motion and then the sound will follow you the speakers don't turn they just change the programming behind the sound so that the sound follows you as you walk around. Wow. Yeah, so they can do some cool stuff where like yeah. uh, you might be in a gallery yeah. and there might be a story behind all the paintings and as you walk down the hallway, the speaker will follow you. Or they can have things where speakers Sounds giving like out. Chaos. Uh, <laughs> really, there's more than one person in there. <laughs> well, yeah, then, so if there is more than one person, now you can have one where you have two voices moving. Okay. So, but there's only one speaker doing, or two speakers doing it. Oh, wow. You know, so they have all these different ways. Like there was one thing that was recently brought out of here by one of my friends. Actually, he developed this algorithm for actually people who are hard of hearing in a room with other people who aren't hard of hearing. So mm. let's say, let's say for crude example, you are in your house with your family and your grandma's sitting in the corner and mm. she needs it louder than all of you, but you don't want it that loud. Well, this loudspeaker array is programmed in a way that it's a normal volume to you, but just in that cone area where your grandma's sitting, it will be much louder so oh. that she can hear just fine. That sounds brilliant. Yeah, it's really, a really yeah. cool stuff. Anyway, I thought that was great. Walked out of the room laughing. Guess who was outside? The fucking director of the department. <laughs> I'm a 19-year-old at this point thinking, what the shit? I look at the floor because I have no response. I don't know what to say. He's partly laughing, but he's mostly very, very confused. <laughs> so I sort of sit there looking like a pleb. Hey there. Walk off straight away, right? Five years later, he's my supervisor for my PhD. <laughs> it doesn't get worse than that. And, uh, and, the, and then there's the other side. The listening room is there to recreate any environment. Yeah. So let's say an architect wants to design a new theatre yeah. right? or they're told to design a new theatre by a company they'll design it in a way but they won't know how it will sound well we can reproduce that design on software how can you predict what it would sound like well, from mater design? materials have different properties yeah. you can represent those properties mathematically yeah. so what you do is you use some computer aided design to draw, the d draw up the theatre and to each of those surfaces in the theatre you apply mathematical properties Okay. And then what this, and then you do some modeling so that it models you set a source on the stage. Yeah. You know, and you might have a receiver sitting somewhere in the in the seating area. Then that source sends out sound and it's going to travel all spherically. It's going to go in all directions. And then when the rays sort of hit different surfaces, yeah. Well, you can represent the sound with maths and you can represent the surface with maths and then it just calculates mathematically what will happen, whether it reflects, gets absorbed, scatters around, yeah. and then it brings it back into real life terms by producing an oralization, so a sound, basically the sound equivalent of a visualization. Yeah. So you go into that room and you hear what it would sound like if that source was playing, you were sitting in that receiver position, given that specific design 
So, you know, if they say, I want to cover every wall in glass, well, you model that. Mm. And then you play it back, and it has speak. We have like 26 speakers, or maybe even more than that, because you want to accurately represent yeah, yeah. sound from all directions. So this is a really good way to sort of design, uh, work with a design, uh, architectural design field. How good a prediction is it of what it would sound like? Because I just think, like, if you had different numbers of people in the room, the sound would bounce around differently. And yeah, absolutely. If those people had, I don't know, just were making noise themselves, rustling crisp packets or whatever, that would affect Yeah, it's true. Sound. Um, so what you can do, actually, is uh, people take measurements of materials to get the mathematical properties. Yeah. In fact, <clears throat> I, while I was working for that year abroad, I was producing organizations for companies. And one of the things you can do is uh, model seating as seating half-occupied, things like that. Oh, Someone's okay, taken yeah. measurements of yeah. an arena where it's half-occupied or full-occupied or yeah. not occupied, um, and then soft seating, hard seating, whatever. Yeah. So you try and have properties for any, any situation. Right. And then what you'd do in the listing room is you'd have your client and you'd say, look, these are the settings we put in, this is what it'll sound like. And they might say, well, it's a bit high frequency, it's a bit sharp, tinny, okay. bright. And then they'll say, okay, then we'll do this to remedy that. Wow. So it's a cheap way of, you know, instead of building it, making a mistake and retrofitting yeah. it, yeah. you can just design it. And, I, and so I did stuff for that, like Royal Albert Hall, we modeled. Uh, Natural History Museum. I did some stuff for High Speed Railway too, as well. Okay. So you can do this for environmental conditions as well, so where there aren't walls and things. People just want to know, especially around the Chiltern Hills, if I'm going to have a high speed railway behind my garden, what's it going to be like for me in terms of acoustics? Yeah. Well, we can model that and show them, okay, at this distance where you're sitting, this is how loud it will be and this is what you'll hear. And to their surprise, they didn't hear that much. Now, fortunately, I study bubbles. Okay, no laughter, great. Because bubbles are very serious things. Thank you very much. And actually, I study their interaction underwater with sound fields. Now, they do some very extraordinary things, and we can use this to our benefit. For example, you may have seen the video with David Attenborough on Blue Planet, I believe it is, where a GAM, a collection, collective noun for whales, a GAM of humpback whales is, is hunting herring. And what you have is uh, one that swims around the, the school of herring, and spews out columns of bubbles. And that produces a bubble net around them. Another one sends out a very distressing hunting call into that cloud of bubbles. And then the rest of them are swimming underneath, rising them up to the surface. Now, the bubbles have a very interesting way of reacting with or interacting with certain sounds, such that, in this case, it traps the sound within the bubble net. Now, normally, fish don't have trouble swimming through bubbles. So what happens, um, in this case, is they swim to the wall, and they're confronted with this really loud sound. They get startled, and as a protective measure, they school together. And in this case, it, um, it works against them because now the whales can come up underneath with their mouths open and gobble them up, and they can catch tons of fish a day doing this. Now, this has inspired civil engineering because we can now use this to protect distant marine life from construction noise. So you can have a pile driver which sends a long column into the seafloor, and we can have that bubble net around it to stop the sound from propagating far away and disturbing, let's say, a mother and her calf. And it's really cool. So you explained with the whales and things using the bubbles to um, reflect sound off yep. the thing. And he talked about putting the bubbles around a, a pile driver. Yeah. Like said. And I just kind of wonder like, how you get the bubbles to stay there. Because you need the bubbles there all the time. Yeah, so. yeah. So what you would have... Um, would it just be a constant stream of bubbles coming Absolutely. Out? So... I don't know specifically because I haven't been out there, but the way I produce bubbles in my laboratory is, um, 
well, I have a tank that sort of sloshes water around. It goes through like a constriction in a pipe, and then that constriction opens up, and you get these bubbles coming out because the water's going through very high and low pressure and it expands. Anyway, that's another story. <laughs> but the way I distribute it into my tank is it goes through a pipe, and then it goes through sort of like a gutter grating, you know, like the slotted things that you stick okay. in the ground. Yeah. Um, and so then the water flows through that, and it sort of just comes up in a big plume. Right. And uh, you could sort of do that. You could either have something like that in a like a big circular version of that, or you could have a pipe, like a circular pipe with lots of holes in it, and that could just spew out bubbles because you're flowing bubbly water through there, and that has to escape somehow. Yeah. And it yeah. just comes out of those little holes, and um, so you've got this constant. So how how tight a configuration of the bubbles do you need? Do you need like? constant bubbles all next to each other or um well if you can the sound get through gaps between the bubbles <laughs> no, well um if you look if if you were to just type in like i don't know bbc blue planet humpback whales or something <laughs> feeding right. you would see that when they spew out the bubbles they're not constantly spewing them out as they swim in a spiral you'll just yeah. see they sort of swim stop psh, swim stop psh. so you'll see you'll just see these columns yeah of bubbles um, the bubbles will spread in themselves and eventually turn into a sort of net. But if you're wanting to, if you're wanting to use the bubbles specifically, because for them it doesn't necessarily matter if some of the sound leaks out. Yeah. Whereas yeah. you're wanting to use this with the pile driver to stop the sound leaking out so that it doesn't yeah, get further yeah. out to disturb other things. So if you want to make sure that no sound leaks out, it seems like a, you would you'd need a tighter. Yeah, you you probably those holes that I was talking about in that circular pipe. Yeah. You probably have them very closely spaced together. Right. Or in 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 maybe a perfect case would be having the, the, the gutter grating because yeah. then it's all open and bubbles can flow through everywhere right. and you can just have this big wall of bubbles. Okay. And the idea is it, it doesn't reflect sound from the power driver but rather, oh well in this case it does because the sound just bounces off the bubbles but in some cases if you were to send sound into the bubbles the sound would get trapped within the bubble cloud, it wouldn't go into the bubble free area. But okay. bubbles also reflect sound as well. Bubbles are See, it sounds very funny when you talk about bubbles, but actually they have a very remarkable way of interacting with sound. So I told my brother this a couple of years back when we were in a swimming pool in Egypt. <laughs> Being a little kid, he starts swimming around me doing this. Very quickly I realise what he's doing. So I think, oh shit, here we go. And we're in another country as well, so this is very dodgy. Anyway, he gets behind me, and he stops, and I hear, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, so I got him, got him out of there sharpish. Now, I said little brother. That was two years ago. He's now looking to study medicine in September. <laughs> Our youth. The project I wanted to do at the Institute of Cancer Research was to use bubbles to sort of destroy tumours from the inside. So you can cause these bubbles to come out of solution. There's gas dissolved in everything. Yeah. And so what you could do is you can use ultrasound to cause those bubbles to come out of solution. They start to pulsate violently, and that starts to rupt to the tissue. That sounds quite dangerous, because in um, general, so like um, the bends yeah. is a thing where you get the, the, is, the gas yeah. coming out of solution and you get bubbles in the yeah. blood or something, and, and this, that, that's dangerous. Yeah, that's something that, that's the first thing people say when I talk about bubbles, either in tissue or the bloodstream. Because we also use bubbles to enhance ultrasonic imaging. So what you can do is you... you but, when we talk about we talk about micro bubbles, okay. bubbles for the bends are much larger than that. Oh right, okay. Um, but micro bubbles, and when and when they're un produced in a controlled condition, 
you keep them as micro bubbles and you ensure they don't expand beyond that. Yeah. So they'll pulsate, and by pulsate, I mean you know the radius gets bigger and the radius gets smaller, it keeps going bigger and smaller. But we ensure okay. that the radius doesn't get so large that it gets out of control and starts tearing stuff up. Okay. In the terms, in terms of tearing this tissue apart, okay, we're breaking something, but it's still under a controlled condition. Yeah. And the moment you know, the only reason you get the bends right is because as you increase in depth in the ocean, you increase in atmospheric pressure. Mm. Right, and it's that pressure that is causing the bubble to pulsate because like I said sound is a fluctuation in pressure yep. now if you imagine a sound wave where it goes up and then down right, the down part, the trough of the wave is a peak negative pressure negative pressure is expansion right? it's putting something under tension so imagine, imagine a piece of loo roll right? and there's perforations between the two pieces that you got if you put that under tension, what part's going to break first? The perforations, okay, right? You right. pull you pull the tissue apart, and the perforations get bigger. Yeah, that's because that's a void in your structure. Yeah. In the same way, if you have bubbles in your tissue or anything, you're going, you quickly descend. You should never quickly descend, right? When you're diving, but imagine you were to quickly descend. You've now quickly changed the atmospheric pressure. So you have this sound, you have this pressure that's going positive to negative, something like that. Yeah. You now have this very high negative pressure, which is causing this big tension or expansion. Yeah. Now these bubbles, which are your void in your structure, they rapidly expand, and that causes this yeah. rupturing. I thought it was just from coming up too fast. Well, it can be either or. Oh, really? It's okay. just this change in pressure from yeah, one yeah. value to another. Yeah. Okay. Um, in the same, and it, this happens to dolphins as well when they get scared. They're feeding at the top. You have a ship passing by. They go, oh no! And they quickly dive down, and then that can cause that can cause the bends as well. Oh, really? um, and then, but in the case of the stuff we use in medicine, we can switch that sound pressure off whenever we want. So if it gets dangerous, off, yeah. and then there's no more further damage. Okay. And you can get pinpoint accuracy with this stuff. Yeah, so if you've yeah. got a tumor right next to um, healthy tissue, yeah. you can literally tear away at just the tumor and leave the tissue. And they want to combine it with this focus ultrasound stuff as well. Yeah. So that's called histotripsy, using the bubbles to break apart in their tissue. Here with all the lights, I kind of feel like it's stars in their eyes. And like, Tonight, Matthew, I'm going to be a comedian, man, dressed as a mint ice cream and chocolate flake. <laughs> that's racist, stop it. <laughs> what would you say are the most important future questions or challenges for your field of research? Uh, so some of the stuff I'm working on at the moment is shallow water sonar because the, since the Cold War there's been a push for naval warfare in uh, shallow water scenarios and the problem is in shallow waters you have waves crashing a lot of sedimentary movement a lot of activity this kind of stuff causes sloshing whatever waves introduce air into the water by capturing a certain cylinder of air as a wave curls up pushes it into this ocean and uh, so you get bubbles because when that cylinder of air crashes in it fragments so you have loads of bubbles in shallow water bubbles react with sound or they respond to sound in a very interesting way that they almost give the if you were to use sonar, sonar with bubbles in water they would give the impression that they are a target in themselves so imagine if you're just a computer you send out a sonar signal you wait for a reflection you're going to get reflections from your bubbles and your target let's say a mine that's been hidden Right? 
now you won't now you wouldn't be able to tell whether that bubble is a real target or not because you're just a computer looking for a peak in reflection yeah. you send out a torpedo into bubbles of what's the issue there you know like you do so so loads of people realized this and they started to put mines into coastal areas for um, to sort of defend against amphibious landings or ships coming in because if you say a ship's in millions a mine only costs ten couple of ten tens of thousands or whatever yeah so it's like minimal cost for maximal damage so one of the things i'm trying to do is to look at improving shallow water sonar not for actual warfare but rather for humanitarian purposes to ensure that we can use this sonar to check if water is safe for anything right, okay. whether it's shipping or tourism whatever yeah um the other thing we can do is we can uh, and the other stuff i've been doing is monitoring carbon dioxide absorption by the ocean so um, a wave crashes and it introduces some air into the ocean now those bubbles are like bells small ones ring with a high pitch large ones ring with a low pitch and so instead of the word pitch I'm going to use frequency that's what we would use in acoustics okay. and that frequency is the resonant frequency of that bubble it's the frequency it likes to ring at and from that frequency we can infer the size of the bubble because they're directly related. And if we know the size and the number of each size, we know how the volume of gas that's now been introduced. Mm. And so we can, what we could do is a wave crashes, we could send some hydrophones, underwater microphones, we could send some, send some of them under the wave, listen to what, which bubbles are ringing. And then what happens is big bubbles rise, they're buoyant. Little ones continue to sink and they get smaller. So we listen to when the wave crashes, then a short while later we listen to which ones are still ringing because the little ones will get smaller and because of the increase in pressure with depth they sink. Mm. They get smaller because there's this big greater pressure pushing them in and they keep getting smaller until they disappear. That means they've dissolved. Yeah. Right. So now what's left are the big ones that haven't dissolved and they may keep floating and then exsolve back into the atmosphere. So you listen after the wave and then you listen a short while later and you'll hear, you won't hear the little ones anymore. So you'll hear what's left over. And so the ones that you don't hear have been dissolved. And you can calculate what volume has now been dissolved into the ocean. Okay. So we're looking, we take aerial photographs of waves, look at the sort of white cap, which is the frothy stuff on the top. And then we use some hydrophones to look at the bubbles underneath and just look at it. It's, it's sort of meteorological surveying. Okay. So, but, so then the, the only way you would know how much carbon dioxide has been absorbed is just by knowing roughly how much is in the air to begin with. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and assuming, I mean, you'd sort of have to assume then that the carbon dioxide and oxygen would be dissolved at the same, at the same efficiency rate, yeah, and, the, and whatever, yeah. nitrogen or whatever else is in so, the atmosphere. So this kind of stuff is a multidisciplinary approach. Yeah. And so uh, one of the big issues is like deploying um, equipment out there because yeah. you can't do it in a rough sea state, but you can't do it in a really calm one because then there are no waves to measure. Sure. So some of the stuff I'm trying to do now is uh, <clears throat> trying to source data from other countries as well. Yeah. And ideally I'd like to de build some equipment, deploy it and take some measurements. Because yeah. we have plenty of papers that tell us how to infer the bubble size distribution. So calculate how many bubbles of which size there are using this, the acoustic return. Yeah. You know, you can either look at like how much quieter some some sound gets either side of a bubble cloud and use that to determine for, for, for different frequencies and use that to determine the sizes or you can look at how the sound speed changes all sorts of stuff yeah um, the equations are there it's just the practical side of it which is tricky yeah 
Yeah. So that's one thing. And then the sonar stuff is, again, that was the, this new technique, twin inverted pulse sonar. Um, it's, it's quite new. And so it's just a case of me optimizing it, looking at which sort of settings it works best under. And they, another thing is going out there and taking experiments. A lot of stuff I do, and I quite like it, is I'm a practical physicist, essentially. Like, I, I want to go out and just take experiments, you know, kick it and see if it breaks, basically. Um, and it's kind of bad. Like, <laughs> I, I want to I see it work, and then I'll come back later and try and explain how it works with theory. Okay. Whereas some people would argue, like, no, yeah, you yeah. should do the theory and check it works first and then go and do stuff. Yeah, but yeah. I like to see stuff working. Like I'd like, I like to see the science. To, yeah, that's how I understand I it. Think, I, I think I'd probably characterize that as being like an engineer's way of doing things. Absolutely. Is to like take something apart and then figure out what it yeah. was. Yeah. Um, whereas, yeah, a more scientific way would be to go, okay, let's come up with a hypothesis and then test it. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, and I see that in my two supervisors because okay, one sure. of them is, one of them is absolutely like sort of theory, theory, theory. But I mean, he invents. No, like no end of things he's constantly thinking of stuff and he'll so he thought of this new type of sonar 20 odd years ago he was yeah. talking on Radio 4 about it back then and um, but it wasn't until now that he could like get the funding and stuff to do it and people started to believe that it was working and then that's one supervisor my other supervisor he is more of a signal processor a practical guy mm. and so we have we always have these conversations in our supervisory meetings where the theoretical one would be like oh yeah we could do anything and then the other one goes well no <laughs> <laughs> and then we sort of whittle down the experiments that we can do sure and that and that and he, that and sounds like a good balance it is it's really good I, my supervisors are great the, you know they're really good friends in fact like the um, I get invited to go sailing with them and stuff like that <laughs> so it's it's a bit of a weird relationship but it's really cool it's really relaxed you don't feel like you're being judged know anything like yeah. I really feel like I'm on the same level as them and that's why I, I decided to do a project I was happy to do a project with them yeah because they really treat me with a lot of respect so it's like it's really easy work at least someone you. does yeah. <laughs> yeah at least someone does <laughs> doesn't work out then uh, you got a future career as an impressionist maybe <laughs> yeah I'll try I'll try <laughs> uh, thanks Nicole <laughs> no worries impressions My name is Michael Kane. Not a lot of people know that. Hello again. Thank you for listening all the way through to the end. We'll be back again with episode four in two weeks' time, where Jess Spurrell will be interviewing John LePage. In the meantime, please go like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and watch our videos on YouTube and uh, subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a review, maybe, or comment. And please tell all your friends about Bright Club and about the podcast. This week, I'd also like to let you know, if you don't already know, that um, Pint of Science tickets are now available. So um, whether you're in Southampton or somewhere else in the UK or even somewhere else in the world, I think Pint of Science is running in other countries as well. I'd look that up to check it. But um, certainly, if you're in the UK, just look up Pint of Science they have events coming up in May, early May, and um, they're running over a few days uh, in different pubs all over the country. I know there's five or six pubs where they're running it in Southampton, and I'm sure lots of other towns and cities around the UK are running similar number of events over multiple nights. So there's bound to be a talk on that you're interested in. And I know that there are some Bright Club people involved in running it or giving talks uh, or 
uh, in a couple of cases in uh, MCing events. So we know that they're going to be good shows. I've enjoyed going last year, and I'm looking forward to going again this year. Uh, though I haven't actually bought my own tickets yet, I need to do that. So the last thing I'll say this week is just have a good Easter break. Uh, I'm going on holiday. Uh, I hope you are doing something nice too, uh, and we will be back straight after Easter with our next episode. Bye! That's all gonna end now. <laughs>